Mr. Daniel Christie. Yes. I'm Joseph Donnelly, of the family Donnelly, that you pushed off our land. If you've ever watched the Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman movie, Far and Away, you've probably found quite a few reasons to not like it. Prepare to pay for your crimes. There's the worst stage Irish accents in 800 years of oppression. What do you need more land for? You're not half of Ireland as it is. The your people did. Or the perpetuation of fighting Irish racial stereotypes. Or land-obsessed Irish stereotypes. This land is mine! Mine by destiny! And of course, somebody Irish is drunk in just about every scene. All these things you knew. But it does us another disservice too. A subliminal one. The catalyst for Tom and Nicole's adventures is an eviction. Rent on this property has not been paid. A good old-fashioned famine era, everyone on the side of the road type eviction. Bastards are burning our house! And then burn the roof for good measure, just in case you might have thought about moving back in again. It's a definition of eviction cemented into our collective psyche, along with coffin chips, potato blight and absentee landlords. Repeat it enough times and you convince yourself that it's not an eviction unless somewhere in the picture there's a crying child sitting on a sofa on the pavement. But that's a definition that leaves us poorly equipped to understand 21st century style eviction in Ireland. We tend to see publicity geared around high profile activities with bailiffs and sheriffs. And these are absolutely the, the least amount of evictions that take place. People always avoid these kind of physical seizures. NUI Galway law lecturer Dr Porig Kenneth suggests that we have invented new terms to describe what are effectively still evictions. We have other terms even used by the central bank which are called surrenders. Now that's a remarkable phrase that appears as a a way of repossessing homes as a surrender. Um, which I find really a very strange word. It's really a word for a battle or a war. He sat down with colleagues from 28 European countries to agree what eviction in the 21st century was and how much of it was going on. They all agreed that the first stage of an eviction is when you receive a letter from your landlord or your lender. This is the phase, actually, when most people leave. Most people do not want to face the trauma of protracted legal proceedings Uh, eviction from their home. The fear and trauma is so great that most people leave at this stage. The second stage then is when the process enters the courts. Less people end up on the footpath at this stage, but it's still pretty bruising. But in all these phases, the person or the household live in fear of losing their home. Um, They're all part of the recognised eviction process. You cannot just say an eviction occurs when there's a physical seizure Because most people have left uh, after the first phase. The terminology employed in the courts is still that of foreclosures and surrenders. It's only after a court order isn't complied with that we first hear the term eviction. The general picture is that um, two thirds of people surrender their homes. One third of the homes are repossessed through court orders. This keeps the official figures for evictions in this country low. But... There are tens of thousands that have been effectively kicked out of their homes since the start of the crisis in 2008. We just haven't called them evictions. 
There are now tens of thousands of mortgages still in default since that crash, 55,000 according to the central bank's most recent figures. And that's mortgages, not people under the roof of that mortgage. So we are really talking about somewhere between 200,000 and a quarter of a million people at various stages of the process that we don't call eviction because no roof got burnt by an Anglo-Irish landlord. You're not in Ireland anymore! You arrogant bastard! Still singing the blues. Because it's the best fit, maybe the only fit, for the legacy of the crash that we just don't talk about anymore. The mortgage crisis. The banking crisis was solved at the stroke of a pen by the guarantee. The mortgage crisis which it created is still with us apparently beyond our collective wits to resolve. As we near the end of Boom Bus Broke, we are trying to get a better fix on what happened so that we can better fix what is about to happen. To see if we have learned enough from the last decade that we might change the tune for the next ten years. But for the moment... The blues will do. Since the start of the crisis, the official figure is that the equivalent of the population of Sligo has been kicked out of their homes. About 62,000, 65,000 people have lost their homes. But the real figure is doubtless much higher. We have to bear in mind that these figures are self-reporting by lenders. and There doesn't seem to be any independent verification process whereas the organisations and agencies involved in the in the assisting debtors would say that the the figures are much higher. Because many of the people who lost their home were like Dorothy. Blissfully, we could have lived there forever if that was possible. She and her three children really loved the place that they were renting as the crisis started. It was great. We had a lot of space, a lot of privacy um, and a really good landlord. It really worked as a family home. And it was really, like, I felt so secure in there, I have to be honest. And uh, we were lucky at the time because the rent was reasonable. And How did you get on with that landlord? Got on really well. He was a real nice uh, man. He was an elderly man, had multiple properties. And that was where her problem started. A change in circumstances meant that she had to go on the housing assistance payment. She asked her landlord would he sign forms for her and he revealed that his properties were now in Nama. They were there to sell properties. They weren't there to like, make life easier for tenants. They were all about money and they wanted their any assets sold. So I think when they saw a distressed landlord, it was happy days for them. They weren't considering that a family was going to be homeless. 
Hers and the houses on either side were parcelled together and sold off as a plot with development potential rather than as homes with sitting tenants. And it wasn't about the housing, it was about the land. The whole plot was sold for about 10% of what the new owner is asking for it now, with planning permission added on. He wanted to actually make money on the plot and he didn't want to keep the houses, he wanted to build What actually ended up getting built there? It's not even built on yet. He has it for sale with planning permission for housing. And so he started saying, oh, you know, uh, I need you to get out and all of that. And uh, so I said I'd need it in writing. From that moment, Dorothy and her kids' days in their home were numbered. She was about to become another uncounted statistic. At the start of the crisis... The focus of policymakers and media was on protecting homeowners, presumably because most politicians and journalists are homeowners themselves. We all but ignored the predicament of the tenants living in buy-to-lets. It's only a bit later on that people began to realise in the middle of all this we have thousands and thousands of buy-to-let mortgages which are also in distress. And in the middle of those we have all these tenants uh, who don't get considered at all or who are not considered in any of the reports of the central bank or any of the reports from the Department of Finance or any of the considerations in the case law because they don't have property rights. They really have tenancy rights under the Residential Tenancies Act 2004, which, of course, uh, can be ended for a number of reasons, one of which is the owner or the lender wants to sell the property. And there's no defence to that. So the tenant the tenant will have to leave. So you're right in the sense that the priority has been given to owner-occupiers, but that's because of the banking stability issue and, um, I suppose, the sheer extent of the mortgages, the mortgage arrears. Insofar as there was a coherent narrative around buy-to-lets versus family homes, it was this. The family home is emotionally and constitutionally sacrosanct. Might and main should be moved to keep families in family homes. But buy-to-lets are different. They are a symptom that someone gambled and lost, was imprudent, and we can't and we shouldn't help imprudent people. We effectively developed a blind spot to the fact that buy-to-lets were family homes too. Yes, and I think it is a blind spot that you see in all of the political statements and all of the banking, central bank reports. It's it's a complete blind spot. The problem is the focus was very much on the loans and the lenders and the borrowers. And even in some cases, the dependents of the borrower in, in a private dwelling house weren't even considered. It was really seen as a contract between a borrower and a lender. And the problem was the perspective of all the initiatives was coming from banking and prudential regulation. It wasn't coming from the people's perspective to say, yes, well, there are problems with this loan, but we also have a constitutional right. Even if you're a renter, you have a constitutional right to the inviolability of the dwelling uh, and you cannot go into court and, and assert it in the middle of a mortgage case with a, with a, with a buy-to-let lender. In other words, Dorothy and all of the other evicted tenants had rights, but the system, from the operation of NAMA right through to the courts, was effectively gerrymandered to exclude tenants. Dorothy's only hope 
was to play for time, see if she could frustrate her new landlord's plans for the year that she needed for the youngest of her children to finish in school. So he started that process of giving me a written notice to vacate and everything, but he didn't follow the procedure of it and there were omissions from the letter and all that. So I started then contacting the PRTB um, saying that I wanted to raise an issue about the notification and all that. And so we did that for over a year because he kept getting it wrong. And um, I was trying to stay in the property as much as possible. I knew eventually that um, we would have to move, but I would have really needed time. And so trying to buy time and RTB was there for me to use and to exhaust every avenue. And so that's exactly what I did. But by the start of 2017, she was out, evicted. The PRTB saw her delaying tactics for what they were, tactics, and chose to find in favour of her landlord's property rights. These are the facts of Dorothy's case, and she is representative of thousands of tenants made homeless through no fault or action of their own. But the facts don't take account of the human dimension. And I've held back some personal details about Dorothy. Two of her children have special needs, intellectual disabilities. And shortly before she was first told her home was being sold, Dorothy was diagnosed with cancer. She told Nama, but the agency pressed ahead with the sale. They wanted uh me to open the house up so that people could come in and look around. And I said, there's no way I'm doing that because my immune system is really low with all of the chemicals and stuff. And you're told not to mix. Um, So I wouldn't allow anybody in the house. So we had people coming up to the window and gawking in. And there's me. I had no hair at the time. I had um, a hat on my head and... It was so invasive. So in the end, myself and the kids just got in the car and went out for a drive for an hour. So we didn't have to witness it. It was really upsetting for all of us. What does losing your home do to you? What's the human dimension of something that we all too often think of as a legal and a banking crisis? I saw a kind of a a process uh, take place. And I I would say that uh, the initial part of it is definitely shock. Cecilia Forrestal from the NGO Community Action Network met with scores of people who were losing or had lost their homes during austerity. This is her personal map of the range of human emotions. You know, finding yourself losing your job or illness or the recession or austerity or whatever it was at the time um, and finding yourself in mortgage distress and really struggling just to manage all of those things happening at a time in your life. I think the first... Uh, reaction was shock. It's a four-stage process that ends in a lasting sense of it's just you against the world, but not before a long period of silence and humiliation. It then kind of quickly moved into silence and shame, stigma, isolation, fear. It was the big secret for many people. Their neighbours didn't know. I'm sure it's the same today. Um, Family members didn't even know in some cases. And people just kind of, it was a very individualised, isolating experience, um, dominating by, I suppose, a sense of failure in themselves, fear and stress. And all of that kind of happens all at once in a person's life. It's a huge impact um, on, on 
person's mental health, their ability to cope, their whole family, everything about them. But who would remain passive for long in the face of a system that is so heavily stacked against them? But then I think as time moves on and people started engaging with banks and with the courts and all of that, all of that turned into anger, um, powerlessness, frustration, complete lack of trust in the system, be it the banking, the court system, the legal system. And the net result in many cases? Quite a number of people ended up with a huge sense of injustice and a feeling of abandonment. At a time when no one was really gathering data on those being evicted, not the central bank, not the Department of Finance anyway, Cecilia organised town hall style meetings. She heard from scores of people in mortgage distress and built up an evidence-based picture of who they were. There was a very high proportion of women with at least three children, um, mostly living on social welfare, included in that number. In our own research uh, at the time, we got 17.5% of people whose spouse uh, had bought the house with them originally, but was was now no longer in the home. Um, We were also finding that of the people we interviewed, half of them had children living in the home and a a significant quarter had people with uh, disabilities. Um, So, Yes, I would say that there was a lot, obviously a huge number of women, um, but a huge number of women on their own. Lone parent Dorothy was exactly who they were, looking after three kids, two with special needs, recovering from surgery, chemo and radiotherapy for cancer herself, and wondering why the system would take the side of someone who wanted to make a fast buck from knocking down houses and flipping a site rather than her. How is it that the government is allowing systems like this that are making our poorest in society even more marginalised? It takes a lot of empathy to really put yourself in Dorothy's shoes and imagine what she was going through because her situation is so unimaginable. Lone parents, special needs children, uncertain if she was going to be alive in a year's time and about to be made homeless. High stress stuff. Oh no, it was through the roof. And I thought, like, Nama didn't give a damn, you know, what was happening in my life. They just wanted the assets sold. Because I'm a lone parent, it's the worry about the children, you know, and you do in the back of your head have this thing, well, I mightn't even survive the chemo and what's going to happen with the kids. So, like, it was just utter stress because you're not I couldn't think about myself I had to think about the kids and I had to think about what was going on with the landlord and the eviction. From somewhere deep inside Dorothy found the energy to keep on going and this is typical according to Cecilia's research. A lazy trope took hold during the last decade a narrative which may have suited the banks in which defaulters were all ostriches doing nothing not engaging with their lenders at all. In our research, we had 70% had attended court um, in relation to their own um, issues. Only 11% didn't go to court, and many of them because their solicitors told them to stay away. And that figure somewhat undermines the bank's characterisation of borrowers who just refused to engage. The other popular media depiction of defaulters was that many of them were gaming the crisis, looking for a write-down. Unlikely, says Cecilia, nobody would willingly put themselves through what the system did to mortgage defaulters. 
I have vivid memories of talking to uh, people about the stress, the, the mental stress, the um, the numbers of people people knew who had taken their lives. I I remember vividly talking to a man as he told me about sitting in the dark in his kitchen and contemplating um, ending it all. So I don't think I don't think anyone will take that on or do that on a voluntary basis. People, these people all had homes. Homes were places that they set out from, a place of refuge, place to, to from which to, I suppose, lead out on the rest of your life and try and live the life as best you can. Nobody voluntarily would put that at risk. 66% of the people that Cecilia spoke to said that they were not going to be able to afford rent in the private sector if they lost their house. Did we solve a banking crisis by creating a housing and homelessness crisis? And it was always astonishing to me that that was never really brought out in the kind of dominant narrative at the time. Um, at the time, all the talk was about non-performing loans, property, investments, uh, all of that kind of language. Um, when in fact what we were really talking about were men, women and children trying to get on with their life um, and, you know, living in a home. And in, in our research at that time, we found that 56% of them had been in their homes for 10 years and a further 36% had been in their homes for 20 years. So we're not really talking about people who are fly-by-nights. They were people like you and me. And now all of us are vulnerable again. Before we've even remotely solved the mortgage crisis of the last crash, a new wave of business insolvencies and redundancies will push another mortgage and rent arrears crisis before it. The one thing that's not going to happen is that we're going to throw out thousands and thousands of families on the street and then have the state uh, rehousing them in emergency accommodation. That's very unlikely to happen. But I suspect Dr. Porrick Kenna, director of the Centre for Housing Law, Rights and Policy in NUIG, is saying this more out of hope than expectation because... There doesn't seem to be a coherent strategy across the state bodies and the central bank and the Department of Finance about bringing this to an orderly resolution because it's going on 10 years. We're now facing another wave of arrears and debt from covid and, you know, we don't seem to have learned that we need to approach this, you know, on a scaled up, scaled up way. An example of what scaled up means is that while personal insolvency plans are working to keep people in their homes and write down debt, at the present rate of a thousand pips a year, it will be 2076 before the mortgage arrears cases from the 2008 crash are worked through. There are other ways of doing it, of course. I mean, the other way is that the state takes over these distressed loans with these vulnerable households uh, at a scaled up version rather than the mortgage to rent process, which again is done on an individual level, and and really convert them into rented accommodation, long-term rented accommodation. Uh, and that would really solve the problem very quickly. Borek, what's the big lesson from the last crisis that we should have learned before we face into the one that's coming? Well, I think one of the things we should have learned is the idea of punishing people who are unable to pay their mortgages doesn't really achieve anything. And it just creates long-term problems for the uh, financial stability of both the banks, households and, and society.
Now, if you've stuck with this programme so far, and indeed this series, you deserve a good news story. I can't give you one for how it's going to work out for all of us, but things did work out for Dorothy. It does, in a way, feel like home, like no other place. It's made a huge difference to my life. After a year of unsuitable stopgap accommodation that had just about kept them off the streets, one day Dorothy got a call completely out of the blue from the Housing Association, Cluid, offering her a rental contract on a new build home. I haven't got as much financial worry and I know that there's a place where we're all able to just be a family and, you know, especially now with the pandemic you know, that we have a place we can be together. But here's the thing about trauma. You don't just get over it. It stays with you and it changes you. And Dorothy will probably never feel entirely secure ever again. This isn't a permanent home. Um, All going well, like I'll never get evicted, but it's here till I die. Um, And I don't know what will happen to the children afterwards. And I suppose the real worry is now after the pandemic that they'll want to go back to normal. And the rest of the country, I feel now, are there's no way we want to go back to normal. Like the place was struggling big time before the pandemic. And now we need it better. We don't want normal. I know of people that are in mortgage distress still. They're going to be homeless and they'll be the new homeless. And I'm like, we're supposed to be an equal society We're very rigid in how we see housing and um, it hasn't helped us at all. We've seen a mortgage crisis happen before. We can see the next one coming. It's just around the corner. And we know what they say about repeating the same mistakes and expecting different results. Can we learn lessons from our own recent past? Can we change this record? That's a decision that we're going to make in the next programme, the final in the series. Till then, though, it's the blues. Boombus Broke is produced and presented by Philip Boucher-Hayes at home in his living room, which I hope explains the occasionally less than optimum sound quality. Thanks for listening and stay safe.